watching my friend slowly burn herself out in a relentless pursuit of perfection. She's adding more and more things to an already full schedule, so of course she's subtracting more and more hours of sleep from her already exhausted body. She's pushing through the constant anxiety and stress headaches. She wants the best for herself, don't we all? But she's been given a false picture of what is best, and it makes my heart so sad. Having the best grades, the best job, the best resume, the best style, and of course being the absolute best at ignoring her body's cries for help, because that's only a sign of weakness, which definitely is not the best. I wish I could sit her down on a nice, comfy couch and give her a pair of slippers and a cup of hot chocolate and share with her these words from the Tao Te Ching. It is easier to carry an empty cup than one that is filled to the brim. The sharper the knife, the easier it is to dull. The more wealth you possess, the harder it is to protect. Pride brings its own trouble. When you have accomplished your goal, simply walk away. This is the pathway to heaven. And just like that, I think her perspective would be radically transformed. Verses like these teach us what is really worth valuing in life and how we can build something that will truly last. At least, that's what they've taught me. This has been part of my journey with the Tao Te Ching, that ancient book of Chinese wisdom and spirituality that didn't draw me away from a Christ-centered faith, but actually helped me hold on to it. Hi, my name's Corey Farr, and I want to welcome you to the seventh episode of this podcast series, A Christian Reads the Tao Te Ching. In this series, I'll be working through the Tao Te Ching from beginning to end and discussing how so many of its themes and lessons are directly applicable to spiritual formation as a Jesus follower. The whole thing is a much more detailed spinoff of a series I'm writing on my blog, uh, where I post some of my poetry as well as other articles about faith and spirituality, which you can check out at coreyfar.com. If you're not sure what this series is all about, or if you have questions about the Tao Te Ching, or what it means for a Christian to read it while staying faithful to Christ, please check out the introduction episode to the podcast. Uh, you might hear some things here that make you feel a little cautious or concerned that I'm just trying to blend Christianity with another religion. Uh, but that's not something Lao Tzu ever intended to start when he wrote the Tao Te Ching. So I explain all of that in episode one. In today's episode, we're going to look at chapters nine and ten. Chapter 9 is all about one very important paradox, uh, that having too much can easily turn into having nothing at all. It's not just saying that if we try to have it all, we can lose it, although it does say that too. But it also goes on to say that when we are constantly grasping for more and more and more, wealth, fame, approval, self-perfection, all we're actually doing is making prisoners of ourselves. We'll see how all this does is lead us into worry which turns the things that were meant to give life into things that only take it away. Chapter 10 then rehearses and goes deeper into some themes we've already looked at, non-dualistic thinking and wu-wei, or actionless action. I gave a more detailed definition of wu-wei in previous episodes, but today we're going to see how letting go of our ego and our attachments and learning to love without controlling are at the heart of a healthy person, or what the TTC calls the wise person or the master or the sage. 
I think it's really obvious how much all of this lines up with the teachings of Jesus, but if it isn't yet, I hope it will be by the end of the episode. So let's go ahead and jump right in by hearing chapter 9 in a different translation uh, than the one I read just a minute ago. Fill your bowl to the brim, and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife, and it will blunt. Chase after money and security, and your heart will never unclench. Care about people's approval, and you will be their prisoner. Do your work, then step back. The only path to serenity. Chapter 9 is full of beautiful, parable-like imagery that really cuts to the core of human experience. Uh, Especially in our world of consumerism and constant competition, it's so easy to fall into the trap of always wanting more. And the TTC gives us three pictures that, uh, for me, illustrate three different ways in which we can do this. Uh, These are just my interpretations, and I'm sure that there are plenty of others, but here's what I'm drawing from it today. And and I do have to say today, because it seems like every time I read the TTC, uh, I draw new things from it, and new things just stand out to me in new ways. First, there's the picture of the bowl or cup. If we try to overfill it, then we're bound to spill some or even all of it. I actually did this just this morning. Uh, I was making coffee and I wanted the cup to be more full so that I could enjoy it longer. Uh, And all I ended up doing was making a mess everywhere when I spilled some of it. Uh, And even if I hadn't spilled it, it takes so much work and concentration and focus to carry that full cup and take the first few sips that it's really not worth it. I mean, seriously, just pour it a little less full and drink it and then go refill it. Uh, It sounds so simple and I don't understand why I don't do it that way. Uh, Mitchell's translation says this in the negative, as we just heard, fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. But Jafu Feng approaches this from affirming the good approach rather than emphasizing the bad one. His translation says, better to stop short than fill to the brim. I think we all know this deep down, uh, but as the TTC often says, it's so hard to put it into practice. Uh, For me, this picture about the cup is about the ways in which we try to fill our lives. It's so easy to always be grasping for more, putting more and more and more things into our already busy schedules. I mean, really, how many times a week do we hear people talk about how busy they are? It seems to be the most common response to the question, how are you? It's almost like a liturgy of American culture at this point. How are you? Oh, I'm so busy. And then, more likely than not, the person who asked the question feels like they have to agree. Uh, Oh yeah, I've been busy too. And then you won't believe all the things that I had to do this week. And then the other person starts describing how busy they are and all the things they had to do this week. And it becomes almost a kind of competition to see who can have the most stressful life. But we don't see it this way. We see it as measuring our worth and our productivity. The truth is, we are addicted to being busy. The phrase I use for this in my book manuscript that isn't released yet, but hopefully will be one day, is that we're in the business of busyness. Our culture has idolized being productive to the point that we feel compelled to have as busy a life as possible. In fact, we often feel guilty just for not being busy. I'm thinking back right now to a season in my life. It was about a year and a half ago. I had just graduated from seminary and started this new job, and it was relatively low intensity. I had the freedom to make my own schedule, and it was a very fulfilling job, but I had a lot of free time. It was awesome because I could really make room for friendships and community in my life. But I was also staying up late and sleeping in late. I'm very much a a night person. And I wasn't necessarily always being super 
productive. There were definitely times where I was doing things that were worth doing, uh, like working on music or writing or reading, uh, but there were also plenty of times I was being unproductive, just staying up late and watching TV or other mindless activities. But I wasn't just feeling guilty when I wasn't doing productive things. I found myself actually feeling guilty just because I had the opportunity to be unproductive. I mean, I felt guilty because my schedule wasn't stuffed to overflowing. My cup wasn't filled to the brim, but I felt like it should be. There's something wrong here, and I think it really cuts to the core and the heart of American culture and narrative. Then we move into the second picture in this chapter, which is that of sharpening a knife. Oversharpen the knife, and the edge will soon blunt. When I read this metaphor, I think of the search for perfection. We work so hard to refine ourselves, to perfect ourselves, and it can often backfire. I'm not saying that seeking self-improvement and growth is a bad thing. I mean, I'd have to be crazy to suggest that. Or maybe I'd just have to have incredibly low self-esteem and skepticism about my own ability to grow. But yes, it's very important to make intentional choices and establish rhythms in our lives that help us to grow. We don't just become healthy, functioning, mature people. We have to live our way into it. But I often find myself caught up in the lie that with enough willpower and intentionality, I can become a perfect person. And the simple fact is that even if that were true, in spite of all my best intentions, I do not have the willpower or the intentionality to make it happen. I do my best, but honestly, even the concept of perfection, as though it were an achievable state, is itself the kind of dualistic thinking that authors like Richard Rohr and the TTC itself warn us about and challenge us to deconstruct. It's not a binary black and white thing, as though there were a state of perfection that we can just achieve and wear it as a badge of honor. The simple fact is that every part of life is a journey. It's a never-ending process of both failure and growth. Once again, everyone seems to know this deep down, but it's so hard to believe it. If we start to think of achieving perfection as binary, like it's flipping a switch or changing our status to in a relationship on Facebook, then we're bound to face disappointment and we're going to completely stunt our growth into wholeness. Then we have the third and last picture, and this is the most direct one. Chase after money and security and your heart will never unclench. I love that imagery. It's not just that those who have too much money can become a slave to it, although both Jesus and the TTC are very clear about that. But it goes further. It says that even those who want to have more money and titles and approval from people become enslaved just to the idea of those things. Jesus was really, really clear about this too when he said that no one can serve two masters. You can either serve God or money. And I think that money here can represent all kinds of possessions, but it also represents other things like the search for fame or status or approval. And the last paradoxical line in this chapter is, care about people's approval and you will become their prisoner. It's so easy to enslave ourselves to the pursuit of wealth or fame or recognition or titles or even just being viewed as the best that we can fail to truly live into who we really are. Ron Hogan translates this in a slightly different way, but it only helps to draw out the same principles even more. If you hoard wealth, you fall into its clutches. If you crave success, you succumb to failure. So when it's appropriate, I try to share poems that I've written uh, that help expand on the themes in the episodes. Uh, So before we talk about the answer to all of these problems, 
Uh, Let me read a piece called We Live in Massive Castles. Uh, I wrote this a little while back, and I think it really applies so well to this chapter. We live in massive castles, walls of prejudice, ramparts of pride, towers of scrutiny, battlements of disbelief. We hide behind these things and more that take the shape of sports teams and clearance racks, glass screens and selfie sticks, books of faces kept at a distance, anything that helps us put our best foot forward with low risk and high reward remaining safely indoors in our comfy, climate-controlled castles. Even the least of us knows that our egos are all we own. In this world, I show, therefore I am. Only show the castle and the king, and deep inside the vault, hide the songbird, hide the poet, hide the lonely, hide the lover, hide the empty, hide the weak. We live in massive castles. So what do we do in response to all of these dangers? Well, the last couple lines of this chapter paint a better vision for what it means to be wise and healthy. Do your work, then step back, the only path to serenity. Or, as Jafu Feng translates, retire when the work is done, this is the way of heaven. Or Ron Hogan, do what you have to do, then walk away. Anything else will drive you nuts. Basically, those words speak for themselves. We have to be present enough to see the next step in front of us and do it well. And it's true, sometimes that next step is planning for future steps. I'm not saying that we should just go with the flow so much that we don't think about tomorrow. However, there's got to be some truth in that idea, because Jesus himself told us not to worry about tomorrow, because today has enough cares of its own. And he also told an amazing parable about this man who kept accumulating more and more wealth, so he kept building bigger and bigger storehouses to keep all of his things. And then guess what happened? He dropped dead without ever really putting any of it to good use to make the world around him a better place. So I think, of course, we have to find a balance between being present and looking towards the future. And I think this chapter gives us a better picture of how to view the future. If we look at it as only a constant search for more, more wealth, more things to do, more fame, more popularity, even more feelings of success, then we will only end up in a spiral of worry. I often turn to David Jones' book, The Way and the Word, uh, The Tao of Jesus, which is kind of a paraphrase of the TTC, but also has whole sections where he takes it off in a new direction, kind of improvising on it and incorporating teachings of Jesus. I love what he does in this chapter because he takes that theme of worry and really expands on it by looking to Jesus' words. The lamp of your mind is your eye. If your eye has a cataract, how can you see? The interpreter for your eyes is your mind. If your mind has a cataract, how can you perceive? Worry is a mental cataract. So why worry? Worry won't make tomorrow come quicker. Worry won't fix your broken yesterday. Worry won't keep you from squandering each moment. So why worry? Worry won't feed you. Worry won't keep you safe. Worry won't make you live longer. So why worry? Why worry about your house when the world is your home? Why do you worry about death when you have yet to fully live? 
Do you think the bird worries about what it will eat or what it will wear? Of course not. It's too busy flying. If it starts worrying, it will crash. Birds in flight are flying in the way. Do likewise or you'll crash. Chapter 10 is a beautiful one that just continues to draw out some of the ideas we've already talked about in past episodes. Uh, It elaborates on Wu Wei, that is, acting without acting, as well as non-dualistic thinking. Also, I think it really complements Chapter 9 nicely by showing us a different way to live and to view the world. If I had to sum it up, I would say that there are two main ideas here. First, the importance of sort of a curious innocence or a letting go to wonder at all things or what Jesus called a childlike faith. And second, how do we live with this innocence in a world where we can't just actually let it all go? We have to live in that tension as wisely as possible. We can't stop and do nothing. We have things to do. We can't just let things run wild. We have to lead in each of our different situations. We can't just give away every single possession we have. We still have to have things. Although I would add that I think the vast majority of us could afford to give away a lot more and live on a lot less. But let's go ahead and listen to the chapter now, uh, keeping those two themes in mind. Can you hold on to your ego and still stay focused on the Tao? Can you relax your mind and body and brace yourself for a new life? Can you check yourself and see past what's in front of your eyes? Can you be a leader and not try to prove you're in charge? Can you deal with what's happening and let it happen? Can you forget what you know and understand what's real? Start a job and see it through. Have things without holding on to them. Do the job without expectation of reward. Lead people without giving orders. That's the way you do it. So the first verse is kind of a summary for the whole idea of this innocence or childlike wonder. Hogan says, can you hold on to your ego and stay focused on the Tao? MacDonald translates it as, nurture the darkness of your soul until you become whole. And Mitchell does it this way, can you coax your mind from its wandering and keep to the original oneness. Those are three totally different ways of putting it, holding on to the ego or nurturing the darkness of our souls or keeping our minds from wandering, but it's the same goal, becoming whole or becoming more in tune with the Tao, which, remember, we are using to describe the divine order, the flow of the universe, the way God intended things to be. If this is new for you, you can go back and listen to episode one. But the next stanza just continues unpacking this challenge. Uh, The questions are all very different, but they're really all directly related to this idea of wholeness through self-surrender. Can you let your body become supple as a newborn child's? Can you cleanse your inner vision until you see nothing but the light? Can you love people and lead them without imposing your will? Can you deal with the most vital matters by letting events take their course? Can you step back from your own mind and thus understand all things? As I mentioned a few minutes ago, 
For me, these words are kind of like a picture of what it means to really have childlike faith. Jesus said that we need to have faith like little children. And to be honest, I've never been quite sure what that meant. And the first time I read this chapter, uh, Mitchell's translation of letting our bodies become as supple as a newborn child's, it really weirded me out. But then I made the connection. All of these things are about maintaining a childlike innocence. Can we really love and lead others selflessly, adapt to whatever situation comes our way, and be present to the world? The last stanza of this chapter returns to some of the key themes we've heard over and over again throughout the TTC, only now we have a new point of reference to attach them to. Mitchell translates, Giving birth and nourishing, having without possessing, acting with no expectations, leading and not trying to control, this is the supreme virtue. I love the line of having without possessing. Many of us can't simply drop it all and get rid of everything we own, but we can learn to have things without possessing them, meaning to hold onto them as part of our identity, or more accurately, to give them a hold on us. Another powerful line for me here has been acting with no expectations. We can't just drop it all and do nothing, but we can choose to hold our expectations very loosely. This was one of the most important lessons I learned in my training for overseas work. The fact is we all have expectations for everything, whether good or bad expectations. We can't deny that. But there's a difference between having expectations and holding on to those expectations. If we can't adapt to the way things actually turn out, but we keep holding on to the way we wanted them to turn out, it's a recipe for disaster. MacDonald translates these lines as, When heaven gives and takes away, can you be content with the outcome? I love that. The next line, leading without control, is really just a logical extension of these ideas. If we have without possessing, and we act without holding on to our expectations, then we will become the best kind of leaders, those who are able to do what needs to be done to serve the people they love, without flexing our muscles and trying to force things to fit our personal agendas. And to sum it all up, Mitchell simply says, this is the supreme virtue. But there's another translation that expands on this in a way that I really love. Human beings call this virtue. It is the very embodiment of Tao. Tao manifesting itself via the human heart. To live this way is to embody the Te, the virtue of the Tao, the virtue of God as he always intended for humanity to live. But we can get so caught up in all of the little details, our possessions which are possessing us, and our expectations which are keeping us in chains, that we so often fail to see the big picture. When you just zoom out a few clicks, suddenly all the little things that we get hung up on day to day become so unimportant. They give an astronaut seeing the Earth from space, and it's just one thing happening. There's no arguments over this or that. It's just Earth. And I think we forget that a lot. Non-duality helps me remember and remind me to be in on the joke. Because when we forget, when we get so attached to our divisions and our constructions and our boxes and our walls and our categories, we forget that this is everything. This is everything going on. And it is funny. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, those were a few wise words from one of my very close friends, Luke Parr. Uh, I thought it was a great way to segue out of the episode. Um, it's just so exciting to be up and running, to hear the positive feedback and reviews coming in. Uh, I've been getting feedback from some people I really didn't expect who are really enjoying the content in the show. Um, as always, I'm going to ask you, please just take a few seconds to leave a review on your podcast app. Uh, it's such an important metric to get a show off the ground, and it's so difficult to get them. Uh, it's something I don't think of when I listen to shows, because uh, I never realized how important it was. Another important thing you can do to help, I've launched a Patreon page for the show. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with Patreon, uh, it's a way for content creators to stay in control of their work rather than trying to do ads or other things. Um, you can sign up as a patron to support the show from anywhere from 2 to $15 a month, and you get all kinds of cool benefits. Um, there's different levels, including early access to the episodes, uh, access to full transcripts of all the files, uh, access to a private Facebook group, um, and uh, even... Uh, for the $15 a month tier, I'll set up a monthly phone or video call with you to talk about the show or talk about whatever you want. Um, it's really helpful for me to be able to fund my ministry and try to become a more sustainable overseas worker as I am currently funded totally by donors in the U.S. And I would really like to take some of the work I'm doing and use that to help fund my ministry. As always, if you want to read any of my other work, I blog very consistently on faith and spirituality and poetry. Uh, you can find all of that at coreyfar.com. You can also subscribe for email updates or get all of my social media profiles there. Uh, again, that's coreyfar.com, C-O-R-E-Y-F-A-R-R.com. Thanks so much. Grace and peace. <laughs>